Everybody, welcome to this week's episode of Freightonomics. I'm Zach Strickland here with lead economist Anthony Smith, and we're here to discuss what is going on in the freight market as well as that macroeconomic environment. Bring them together today. We have the illustrious, famous Dr. Zach Rogers going to join us today to talk <laughs> about that LMI, uh, among other things. Uh, you know, Anthony, we've got it's August, August is a weird month in yeah. general like it's a very transitional month it's very much like here we are in this you know school starting it's kind of the lagging day the waning days of summer traditional summer not meteor meteorological summer um and it's kind of like i i feel like sometimes it's crazy sometimes it's not it's very hit or miss in terms of freight market but we're going to talk about that upcoming uh anthony smith are you checking the internet uh, so that's exactly what I'm doing right now. What I'm doing is I'm on LinkedIn. So if you're by chance watching on LinkedIn right now, I am looking at those comments. So if you want to chime in on the conversation, have your voice heard, leave a comment right here. If you want to tell Zach that he's wrong, tell him he's wrong right here in LinkedIn and we can go back and forth. Or if you just want to shout out, we're here as well. But without further ado, Zach, we have some lovely people to thank. Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. We have sponsorship. We have a sponsor. Sponsorship is always great. <laughs> yes. So our sponsor is Envision Global. And Envision Global is a leading global freight audit supply chain management services company offering enterprise-wide supply chain solutions. With over 4,000 global businesses, partners, Envision Global not only provides prompt, accurate freight audit solutions, but also providing industry-leading supply chain information management solutions and services necessary to help its clients maximize efficiencies within their supply chain. To learn more, visit www.envisionglobal.com. Envision Global, thanks so much for sponsoring us. Yeah, also Envision with the lowercase n, Vision. <laughs> That's trendy. Envision. Yeah, That's I mean, uh, yeah, and they've got a lot to do uh, upcoming. Well, they've got a lot to do right now yeah. because they've <laughs> The, the import volumes and all of that are still going haywire, and we're about to hit peak season for the maritime side, although we talked with Greg Miller last week about that a little bit, and it's it's kind of like an ongoing peak season. It's never really stopped or slowed down long enough for you to be like, you know, because a peak implies that there is an increase and a decrease. Yeah. Well, we've not really seen anything increase significantly over the last several months. And we haven't really seen anything decrease significantly <laughs> over the last year, obviously. Uh, so we're really more at the plateau season. Yeah. Uh, especially for maritime. Yeah. And <laughs> it's something that we've kind of seen across the board in different yep. industries. Like, right. Even though we might seem some easing, in a sense, for manufacturing, it's not a drop-off, in a sense. No. When you're looking at retail sales or consumer activity, consumer activity hasn't really dropped off. It's still no. pretty much there. It's, it's just kind of moderating at this high level. And so all this is really happening right now within the U.S. Of course, we're kind of moving through this whole pandemic at a pretty fast rate, even though we have Delta variant running rampant right now. Consumer activity seems to kind of keep persisting. Manufacturing activity persistent as well. So it's all these things that are just moderating and continuing to operate at this high level. Yeah. And, and I think you know, especially since we're going up in the fourth quarter, we're getting closer and closer. It'll be here before we know it. 
traditional peak season for tra surface transportation. We'll see what that looks like or plateau continuation of the plateau. But I've got some memes to help us all <laughs> deal with everything uh, that's going on. I'm a little bit scared. I don't know if <laughs> the team put your face on anything. I don't know if Cody had time. He was it's always it's always a, a you know it's always a big crapshoot here uh, <laughs> in terms of what what we're going to get on the meme side. So uh, first one up, we've got you know this isn't necessarily a traditional meme uh, except for the whole nobody and then people who own an air fryer. Here's me looking down on you guys now that I have an air fryer. Now, air fryers were like the big, you know, Christmas gift, <laughs> COVID Christmas gift item last year. Uh, you know, a lot of demand is driven by Christmas season, Anthony. I know you know this, but I don't know if the air fryer is going to make it this year into the Christmas item of the year. But these, these things come from, you know, overseas, drive a lot of import volumes. I don't know what this year's air fryer is going to be. Maybe it is the air fryer. Maybe, you know, everybody's still like on board with, you know, oh, wait, this thing's catching on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know. The, the year before it was Instapot. Yeah. So it's always some sort of like, I feel like this like quick cooking, this shortcut cooking. Some kind of cooking aid. Like what is, the, that's the thing though, is like, you can't make that, like that decision already has to be made now because you can't get in a container. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I definitely fit into this demographic of looking down on people now that I have an air fryer, because Ooh. one, I can't really cook, not very well. Like I'm really bad. I can make a peanut butter and jelly. I can make cereal with the best of them. But outside of that, eggs maybe. So once that air fryer came in, game changer completely. I'm a different person. I act brand new. I don't know anyone anymore. It's like, oh, excuse You're me. You're better. You're better. <laughs> I'm better now. I'm a better person because now I have an air fryer. Good grief. And but now you, I didn't even have to like work on skills. It's just like I can push a button a little bit. But you on an in infomercial for air fryers, but you don't <laughs> eat food, so that won't work. So doesn't matter. <laughs> Speaking of food, though, I got another meme uh, because I'm celebrating the start of the school year. <laughs> uh, kids go back to school today here. Now I know across the United States they start to go um, back to school here in sections. And of course, this is going to drive a lot of activity uh, and changes in consumer behavior. When you inform your mother that you would like to eat Lunchables just as the other school children do at luncheon <laughs> with some Hillshire wine-infused salami. <laughs> is this how it was when you were growing up? Then? I mean, talk about middle-class fancy. <laughs> I mean, which is where a lot of these came from is middleclassfancy.com. Uh, like this is... Wine-infused salami. Now, I, I will say this. My my daughter does like these things. <laughs> she does like these things, and she does eat them. I don't know if she cares that it's wine-infused or not, but it is definitely, it's kind of like upper-class lunchable mm -hmm. action or charcuterie. What yeah. do you mean? Using those Those fancy big fancy words. words. So this is another one of those things where <laughs> it's beyond my palate. And like you said, food and me is whatever. I wouldn't be, if I did a blind taste test, I probably wouldn't be able to tell the difference. <laughs> it's all the same. I mean, I bet she'd figure out wine infused salami. It's uh, all the same. It tastes like the regular turkey lunchable meat, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see just how the school season starts to change. Like, uh, again, you don't, there's always some sort of shifting dynamic this time of year, like August, like school starts, like it used to be like, oh, everybody's cramming all these backpacks and pencils, stuffed in trucks, you know, in July. Did they get it in in time? I don't know. Like, yeah. Spot market's already tight, so you can't really tell. <laughs> there was a big surge of anything. Um, so third and final meme hey, here, uh, again, via middle-class fancy. 
Uh, <laughs> Walmart exists. People that shop at Target Again, using that top down. hat and monocle to looking look down, down on them. <laughs> so would you, in this case, of course, call it Target? Target. I mean, the whole Winnie the Pooh meme, if you've seen that one, you know, say Target, you know, yeah. and he's like, all of a sudden he's in the top hat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love the, I love the poo meme. That's, those are great. And so the, the story here, there we go. Thank you, Cody Mathis. Here I am in my elitist way going to Target. <laughs> <laughs> but Walmart, we talked about Walmart last week a little bit and uh, Eric Coolidge's article uh, talking about how Walmart's really been on top of their game. Yeah. And they command so much uh, pricing power. Uh, in the maritime side, that they're able to get a lot of their freight into this country. They've had their problems. Of course, school supplies were an issue mm -hmm. uh, to get some of those in, but they're able to kind of shift their freight volumes around the country to hit, uh, you know, target markets accordingly. So the swimsuits, for instance, there. yeah, <laughs> swimsuits, for instance, they shifted them uh, to the southern tier of the country because they didn't get in time for the northern tier. Um, really creative stuff going on in the supply chain, especially at Walmart. So even though you know, yeah, you're talking about Target uh, being kind of the upper end Target, I guess, if yeah. you will. Is that right? Is that the way that it... I feel like really... Target is seen as a little bit more higher end than Walmart. A bougie? A little bit more bougie. And the thing is, so in economics, of course, when there's times of recession, people are going to be a little bit more likely to shop at the more affordable stores. So Walmart right. and get these price deals that, you know, is a little bit more pocket friendly during these times of recession. But when times are good... People are feeling confident. They have a lot of cash and savings. They're going to opt for a little bit more of the higher end or maybe mid-end apparel or gear or whatever it might be, shopping experience. And so looking at this, it makes sense if Target is doing really well right now because consumers are typically doing pretty well right now with those savings rates, low debt, low credit card usage. Target's probably not hurting at all. Yeah, I, I think <laughs> you, you said it yourself. Consumer confidence is through the roof. So I feel like Target is kind of set up yeah. <laughs> in, yeah. in this environment. Uh, so yeah, there, there you go. Walmart, Target probably have a pretty big fourth quarter. A lot of that retail action still yet to come, uh, which is crazy. <laughs> so, yeah, and e-commerce. I think Target's done a really good job on the e-commerce lane for sure. Yeah. Um, really optimizing that tech trend of making sure that they're involved with this e-commerce trend. So that's a huge one. And then of Walmart, of, like I said, of course, when there's times of recession, people are going to be flocking to Walmart more price-friendly places. But Walmart's really going to be a win-win-win. Whether times are good, times are bad, people are always going to go to Walmart, no matter what. Especially when times are bad, because those prices are hard to beat. But when times are good, they're going to be flourishing as well. And we can kind of see them really position themselves, I think, on the e-commerce side as well. Yeah. Becoming more of a tech company. Right. Yeah. Well said. A lot yeah. of people go in that tech route after the COVID stuff. So let's Switch gears into our newsonomics, our stories of the day. Uh, you know, it's I, when you're working in media, like you kind of have these, I don't want to call it slow news weeks, mm -hmm. but I was in the woods. So for me, it was really slow <laughs> for the whole last few days. So I'm glad you made it back. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, if you know my history, my parents and everybody involved are all very glad that I get out of the woods, <laughs> both safely and by choice, uh, because it is... It is nice to kind of disconnect for a minute. So for me, I walk back in, I'm expecting mass chaos to, as I come back into society or whatever, and the port of Ningbo gets shut down. So this is, this is all, uh, you know, uh, these, these shippers need is that for another port over in China to get shut down, uh, Ningbo is the third largest port in the world, or port complex in the world, I should say. Um, 
So a uh, dock worker there tested positive for COVID, Delta variant. And so China is very aggressive in their, you know, controls. Uh, as we all know, as they've shut down several areas of the country uh, when, with very small amounts of people <laughs> yeah. showing positive for infection, as far as we know, uh, that is. And the, you know, the implications here, 20% of that port or that port is shut down, um, you know, so it's it's not the entire port, but again, like the port of Yanshan that we talked about a few months ago, uh, being shut down. There's like this ripple effect. So 20% of it's down, then all of a sudden some volumes reduce, and then we get the surge. <laughs> Maybe it'll give. I mean, there's there's still a lot of uh, boats at anchor. I don't know if it's going to have any significant impact here in the United States um, in terms of you know, overall volume and, and supply and capacity just because we're so tight already. And, you know, Greg Miller said it last week, you can't tell because they sat, had so much backlog. Yeah. <laughs> well, you just, that was a huge statement that you made at the top of this is that third largest port complex in the world. Yeah. Absolutely nuts. When you're looking at the scale of what things are operating at overseas in China, this, like you said, a ripple effect off of the other port closure that we had earlier on in the year. It's just, it's massive. And like you said, with Greg Miller, there's so much backlog. There's such a log jam right now. And I think we're even going to talk about this a little bit later on with the great Zach Rogers, but it's just going to be one thing after another, after another. And these are going to be one of those, I think, movements that really don't make a huge headline um, in typical cycles when you're looking at what's going on within freight and transportation, just because these things are always so common, I think, um, during normal times. But of course, during COVID, during this breakout, this pandemic, it's going to be that much more amplified and that much more meaningful with these entire shutdowns happening. Yeah. Also, I have to give a shout out. What's up to Armin Antonian? He's always here. He's always around. So Anton, um, Armin, thank you so much for watching. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for getting thank those you. comments. Thanks for showing up. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, another port shut down. Not sure if it's going to really have a big impact to anything other than some shippers having a, another hiccup. Uh, in the last, uh, you know, <laughs> in this last little month or so of the, the COVID pandemic, hopefully it leaves soon. Doesn't look like it's going anywhere, though. So there's probably more to come on that. Yeah. Uh, the next story, July orders tank, uh, trailer orders tank as July uh, manufacturers struggle to find workers. Uh, Alan Adler uh, writes this story basically saying uh, they can't find enough labor. Uh, Wabash, publicly traded trailer, the only publicly traded trailer manufacturer talking about, um, you know, how orders are down uh, and they can't find anybody to help make them. Uh, they're having to get creative. They're trying to, a lack of workers, supply chain disruptions, and, and the effective end of the order cycle combined to push new trailer orders down 58% year over year in July. So it doesn't necessarily mean that people don't need trailers. Yeah. It just means that all these factors are limiting their ability to order these trailers. And then, of course, uh, the labor shortage also contributing to the lack of trailer production. <laughs> yeah. In that in that regard, so if we pull up the chart here for the uh, you know trailer orders uh, over the last bit, you see very cyclical uh, order pattern. We were already kind of coming out, and that's one of the things that we just said in that in that statement. The end of order cycle. Uh, traditionally, it looks like a lot of the orders kind of soften throughout the summer uh, before starting to pick back up. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, but it's it's not always as seasonal as we as we want to make it. 
they've just they spent a lot of time and money ordering a lot of trailers already. You know, blew through records last year. Uh, at the end of the year, we came through the summer months a little bit depressed, but still 58% decline off a low number, mind you. It was not super robust, uh, you know, at this point last year, or I guess it was actually pretty high last year. We were starting to pick up. I'm sorry, I, I looked at this chart a little bit wrong. <laughs> it was actually pretty uh, robust this time last year. So 58% still means, you know, it's not necessarily like a super big decline. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the big thing for me is looking at these manufacturers, of mm -hmm. course, always been talking about it, the labor issues. Yep. And this is going to be one of those issues where it's really impacting not only those consumers being able to kind of get into those workplaces because of course there's going to be a ton of consumers that are able to do these that are not employed right now but do they want to what are the other competing areas what are the other competing um, segments that might be drawing them away are they you know writing out these jobless claims benefits while they still can or maybe they move to a different segment or different industry overall or maybe it like a, a, like a little bit more of a, a, I wouldn't say a lateral move, but an adjacent move to right. something within warehousing. That's what I'm always curious about is like, you know, a lot of these people got laid off or furloughed last year uh, and they, you know, weren't asked to come back. And now all these companies are like, hey, wait, just kidding. Yeah. I, I need you to come back. Like, uh, I mean, we kind of want to like apply this whole, you know, COVID bailout package to be like, oh, they're just being lazy. Yeah. A lot of these people aren't lazy. Like you're talking about some blue collar workers out mm -hmm. there. They don't just necessarily want to sit around and do nothing. They're, exactly. They're finding something else to do and they've they've transitioned. So now you've reduced your labor pool. I think this is a lesson for a lot of companies out there that go through these, uh, you know, waves of recessions and everything. It's like a lot of these jobs, I mean, these people have to make a decision to move other places. They're not always going to be just sitting there. Uh you know, waiting for you to call them back after what, eight, nine, 10 months. Yeah. <laughs> and even before COVID, we, what we saw was that a lot of manufacturers were paying these pretty substantial relocation packages. Right. Now this is before COVID. So this really tells us that there was an underlying trend here mm -hmm. all along. And now it's only exacerbated now that we're seeing the pandemic really kind of at the tail end, hopefully it's the tail end here <laughs> with all these variants happening. But now oh, what yeah. we've seen, it's all kind of being brought to the surface all these underlying trends. Employment was already a, a huge issue at the manufacturing level. Now it's just kind of exponential at this point, right. as we see more and more of these companies really beginning to ramp up and take hold of that momentum that was really building up really at the end of 2019, going into 2020. Yeah, yeah, very, very, I mean, I think most trucking companies or carriers out there know the difficulty of hiring a driver in general. Yeah. They wouldn't have more than likely furloughed a lot of drivers, I would not imagine. <laughs> so that's probably not as much of the case in the driver pool, but in other industries, manufacturing specifically, they I, I feel like that is something that has definitely happened a lot. Now, especially as technology enters. Yeah. You know, you're becoming more of a coder, more of a programmer, more of a software engineer than what as you a society, may have. we've kind of transitioned our yeah. workforce to a different skill set. So um, the last thing, the last story is my story. <laughs> was this the chart of the week this is the chart of the week so i write a chart of the week every week kind of highlighting some data because i'm a data analyst <laughs> by nature uh and i analyze things a lot <laughs> probably more so than i should uh but this is my chart basically illustrating why is carrier compliance increasing alongside spot rates now 
the traditional thought process here, and you've got our tender rejection right there in blue, uh, National Outbound Tender Rejection Index, uh, paired with the truck stop top 100 seven-day moving average spot rate. Now, these are all in rates. They include fuel and uh, other accessorial charges, but they're largely, you know, you can see the trend line there. It's, it's, it's still going up, but carrier compliance is also increasing. This is kind of contradictory. So the article, I kind of, I go into the math of it. Now, I know a lot of people are like, nah, I don't want to learn about math. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's not what I come to Freightonomics for. Yeah, or see some numbers, but there's an interesting shift in dynamics here. Now, the things that are really making this, um, you know, wh why we're seeing this, you know, contrary to the thought that it's all just, well, contracts are increasing, so rates are increasing, therefore more of the market is, you know, going under contract, which yes, that is a factor, but there is an underlying dynamic and a fundamental shift in what's going on in the market in terms of uh, growth in short haul versus long haul. We talked yeah. about it on uh, Freightways Now this morning a little bit, but this article goes into more detail. Uh, short haul volumes uh, basically have grown, you know, 10 to 20% over the last, you know, several months while long haul and tweener volumes, the stuff that's moving like 450 miles or more is shrinking. It's declining as part of the overall mix. So carriers are accepting more short haul loads because that's what they do. They, yeah. They're easier to care, uh, cover. That driver shortage that's omnipresent <laughs> uh, is also, you don't have as much of a driver shortage in that local day freight. 250 miles or less, you can get back to your destination, dedicated uh, runs. You can get back home. It's not as much over the road, easier to uh, to manage than that uh, that long haul freight, which is where all the rejection rates are in the chart. Uh, you know, I put another chart in there if we want to pull that one up for lengths of haul, and you can see this illustrated on the left. You've got the volumes, uh, and that's a re I believe that's a relative chart there. Yes, for uh, short haul and local haul freight growing. That those are the blue and purple lines, while the uh, the tweener and long haul freight you know, shrinking. And then on the uh, right side, you've got your rejection rates. Yeah. Higher rejection rates for the longer lengths of haul, lower rejection rates for the shorter lengths of haul. So as short haul grows and long haul diminishes, acceptance rates go up Yeah. while demand remains the exact same. <laughs> and it's that optionality on yeah. kind of on a different scale because that's what the outbound tender rejection mm -hmm. index looks at as a whole is the optionality essentially for those drivers. Yep. And being compliant or not. But now it's not just optionality on whether or not I'm going to accept this load, but now we're looking at it on which one I prefer, which yep. length of haul I'm pref I have a preference to. Which and one can I? Yeah. I mean, that 250 mile sector is that minimum freight. It does not follow the spot market. Uh, in the article, I basically show you like the top 100 truck stop index, there's not a single lane in it that's below 250 miles, which is exactly what's causing that rejection rate to come down. Gotcha. Now, all those rejection rates were easing, but they weren't easing significantly. Uh, and the acceleration is largely due to the growth in that short haul volume. Now, uh, and spot freight biased towards longer lengths of haul. Kevin Hill and I discussed this. <laughs> uh, you don't want to cover as a broker. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to cover the short haul freight. There's not enough, there's not enough gravy in that. You're talking about low margins, you know, you need volume at short haul levels. Carriers love volume. They love utilization. Drivers like to drive and be back within a day. Yeah. So this is the carrier type mentality 
driving this acceptances. Uh, and, and if you are just looking in the spot market, that's only the 15% of the overall market um, in any given year. So up at the top, most volatile layers, we're seeing uh, still a lot of opportunity there, rates still increasing. And of course, as those contract rates increase, Anthony, the spread between the spot rate and the contract rate is diminishing. So you're really not seeing an elevated margin. You're as, as much of a margin as you were in the past, and it's making it look like those rates are also increasing when really the spread between the two is declining rapidly. Gotcha. And so, Zach, bringing it back to like our origins of freedomics mm-hmm. and, you know, just kind of diving into what's seasonal, what's regular, what a certain market is, what's usually happening, this divergence and the trend and the preference for length of haul, is this something that we've seen before? Is this typical or is this kind of a nuance in the, in the sense of what's going on right now? Now, this is nothing new. The rejection rates are always lower for the shorter lengths of haul. Your local uh, and short length, short haul freight is always accepted more often. Uh, tweener is always one of the most rejected uh, mileage bands, so 450 to 800 miles. It's kind of that day and a half travel that puts carriers in bad positions at times. Um, so that's not shifting. But what is interesting to me is that that short haul growth is happening <laughs> in relation to long haul growth. Uh, and something that I think we're going to talk with Zach Rogers about here shortly is why is the short haul growth occurring right now? Is it because a lot of this freight that we see like Los Angeles, Long Beach, they can't get any capacity, so they have to cram it into warehouses mm. and stage it for a while before it goes across the country while they're waiting on the rails to get their act together for a truck to show up, <laughs> you know, yeah. get that. That's, I mean, that's, that's the interesting aspect uh, about all this to me is that shippers are changing their behavior based on the capacity, supply chain, bottlenecks, um, and, and they're trying to be creative honestly, about how this is this is moving on. So I think we should bring Zach Rogers on at yeah. this point and just say, hey, Zach, what's up? <laughs> I wish we could. Can we? Can we bring? Yep, we did it. it. Look at <laughs> that. <laughs> like magic. There he is. <laughs> Good to see you guys. I'm glad we pivoted back to freight after the first 10 minutes were a cooking segment. I'm glad. <laughs> I haven't been on the show in a while. I thought maybe you guys would transition. The people tune Dude, in Zach, everything. You know we can't talk about cooking too long because Anthony doesn't eat. <laughs> I know. Time. I know. A cooking segment with Anthony, actually, I think the ratings would go up. Every <laughs> week. Um, so yeah, you're. You know, I, I've been listening to you guys. Everything you're saying is absolutely spot on, and and the tightness we're seeing in in the supply chain right now. I think you know th- there's a lot of indicators we have, a lot of numbers. Um, you know, our, our overall LMI this this month was a seventy four point five which is the third highest uh, uh, number we've ever had, uh, coming off the second highest number we ever had <laughs> a month ago. And, and then we had the same third highest number two months ago. So over the last three months, uh, basically, you know, July, June, and May, we have never had a hotter sort of three-month period uh, than, than what we were just having. Um, and, and I think you're really starting to see it reflected in, in a lot of different places. You know, one of the, the graphs I know I sent you guys um, was was a comparison of upstream and downstream respondents uh, to our survey. Um, and, and just so everyone remembers, uh, um, any number below 50 uh, is contraction. And the further below 50 it is, the more contraction we have. Higher above 50 it is, the, the, the greater the road, uh, rate of growth. Okay, So anything above 50 is growth, below 50 is contraction. So we always ask our respondents, um, you know, all these, all these questions, but we divide them up into upstream and downstream. So retailers, people like that, 
versus manufacturers. And I think it's so interesting, Zach, because it's what you were just talking about, the difference between the long haul and the short haul. Um, the uh, rate of contraction, so for transportation capacity, okay? So transportation capacity, how many trucks are available? For upstream firms, okay, manufacturers, distributors, folks like that, is at 41. So that's below 50. That means there is significant contraction. For downstream respondents, for retailers, it was 21. So 20 points lower on the downstream side relative to their upstream counterparts. Okay. And downstream does tend to be because you're, you know, moving from fulfillment centers to stores, or maybe even, you know, or distribution centers to stores, maybe fulfillment centers to customers, even like, you know, direct uh, e-commerce delivery. That tends to be where we do see more of the short uh, sort of things moving around uh, just with, within, within those networks, really through distribution centers. And we see they're 20 points tighter than we are on the upstream side. And so everything that you're saying right now, and and that uh, that chart you put up of the the tender rejection <laughs> rates by like mileage, that was I had never seen that. That was really cool. <laughs> Someday you guys are gonna have to get me a sonar account. Uh, and and it, it really it's really I think reflecting the things we're seeing as well. Yeah, that's interesting that you say that you're. I love the upstream and downstream chart <laughs> that uh, for the LMI because I think that's you know throughout COVID we've seen, we've seen this dichotomy. <laughs> of mm-hmm. experience uh, throughout, like uh, consumers have had it, manufacturers are having it now. Um, the economic, you know, experience has been very bipolar in the way that some people are feeling it uh, more than others, or totally different than others. And that's that's one of the things that I've I've noticed in a lot of the data, especially economic data. You have this divergence of things that had had somewhat tight relationships in the past. Uh, now are having an alternate experience. Like I talked about in the tender rejection index and the spot rates, like, and it's because things are kind of moving around underneath the surface. Like people are reshuffling how they're, they're doing their business. Like you're talking about uh, with your downstream uh, people. So mm. let me ask you this. <laughs> this is one of the things that I'm sitting there pondering because I couldn't see it in the data itself in terms of like just the aggregate level. I didn't have a lot of time to dig into it in detail. Do you think that this short haul growth is coming from a lack of long haul capacity? Do you think it's like what I said, where, you know, shippers are essentially just trying to scramble and move it off the ports, just get it out of the way? Or do you think that this is uh, the nature of the type of freight that's moving? I think it's two things. I think there's two answers and it depends on the sector of the economy you're looking for. If you're looking more sort of upstream industrial, I think it's exactly what you just said, right? We can't get things across the country, really. I mean, you look at BNSF and 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 Union Pacific over the last couple of weeks, right? Like, oh, we're just not taking new containers, <laughs> or or maybe we're we're cutting in half what we're going to take. UPS put all their controls on stuff. You can't go through Chicago right now. I, I don't think train has moved in Chicago in like three weeks. I mean, everything is just so stopped up, but you can't just leave it on the port because you have twenty two ships anchored off the port of Los Angeles this morning, who would like to get in there. So you can't just leave everything there. And so people are moving in through, you know, I mean, Inland Empire, for instance, is a great example of this, this short haul. Okay, we can't get across the the country to Chattanooga or wherever we're going. So we'll just put some containers in the Inland Empire until we can figure out how to move them later. If you look at warehouse capacity right now, okay, and warehouse capacity 
overall uh, was was contracting um, this this month. I think it was at a 41 uh, for overall warehouse capacity. It was 41. But, you know, if you look at somewhere like Inland Empire, I think I saw their occupancy rate at the end of July was 1.7 or, you know, or, uh, yeah, availability rate was 1.7% uh, in the Inland Empire. And, and, and that 1.7% that's around, it's probably not like the really sweet warehouses that you want anyway, <laughs> uh, with like the really updated modern facilities. And so you do see this sort of backup that's happening. And, and it's all the way, you know, it's all the way through the chain. If we can't get to, you know, where we want to go, well, we'll just stay here for a while. And then it, it's like almost like we're moving incrementally when we can. Um, you know, it's, it's like playing, you know, you, when you're kids, you ever play red light, green light. Someone says green light, you run as far as you can, then it's a red light, and then you go again, and it's red. That, that's what essentially supply chains are doing right now. We only have these little windows where we can move because the costs are out of control, and there's there's no capacity. I mean, you know, uh, a container right now going from China to the West Coast, I think is $18,500. Um, a year ago at this time, I think it was $3,000. And that's totally a function of uh, available supply. So, Zach, one of the things that we were chatting about earlier on, or just actually yesterday, was talking about the aggregate, that capacity, and what's really going on. And you had a really cool chart, a really cool visual around that. Right, yeah. So, uh, oh, there it is. Uh, so, one of the uh, the charts we put, in, um, we put in the report this month was looking at aggregate capacity and aggregate price. So, all of our capacity measures, all of our price measures, uh, and then normalized, they'd be on the same scale. But so basically, they, they go from zero to, to 300, right? Because every individual metric is zero to 100. So we just combine them here. Mm-hmm. Um, and anything over 150 is growth. Anything under 150 is contraction, right? Because everything's just multiplied. So if you look at, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, we had pretty moderate growth for both capacity and uh, and price, right? Within a standard deviation of, of you know, the mean 180, 171. That was pretty steady levels of growth, only 15 points apart. Actually, it's interesting. They're 15.3 points apart. And the reason why that 0.3 is interesting is because if you go forward then to July 21, they're 153 points apart. And so it moved, literally it's a 10x difference in terms of the spread in uh, in July. And you can see it's, it's up at 267.8 for aggregate price measures. Driven, by the way, a lot, um, you know, I think it's a 91 for, for transportation and 89 for inventory and then an 88 for warehousing, which is the highest warehousing number we've ever had, which we can talk about in a minute. Um, and then for, uh, for aggregate capacity, it's, it's 114. And I think it's interesting because we're really starting to hit sort of marginal increasing uh, uh, penalties here. So if you look at the aggregate capacity line, it's been pretty steady. Now, any number below the black line means uh, contraction, okay? So it's, it's been, even if it's a straight line, it just means it's been contracting at the same rate. So really, it's just, you know, a steady slope going downwards. But that, that pink line is fairly consistent, whereas the green line is going straight up. And it's the marginal impact of less capacity is starting to catch up with us, right? So for every truck that we don't have, or for every where, you know, a square foot of warehouse that we don't have, Every unit of capacity that that goes away comes with an additional increased cost, right? So every additional container we don't have becomes more expensive than the last one. All right, it's, it's a marginal increase in cost curve essentially. And and I think the way I was I was describing it uh, to you yesterday, Anthony, um, was you know it's kind of like a supply chain. The supply chain right now 
sort of like, look, you can stay up all night, one night and be probably fine. Go to work the next day. You can be a little tired, but you can function with, with no sleep over one night. If you stay up for five nights in a row, you're going to be insane <laughs> by, by the time the, the morning of, of day six comes around. doesn't matter how much coffee or, or whatever it is you're drinking. You're not going to be able to stay up. And that's kind of where we are with supply chains right now. It's been so stressed with so little capacity for so long that I think we're really starting to see cracks in sort of this system that we've built. And you're really starting to see the reaction to uh, to these shortages increase in uh, in in the price increases we're seeing. So the price increases keep getting greater because of the stress of of low capacity over time. Dude, I love I love that chart so much. <laughs> I love I love the, this concept in general because when I first looked at the tender rejection rate divergence from the you know mo- at least the motion divergence from the spot rate, I was thinking the exact. Along those exact same lines, I was like, this is basic psychology. Just because the rejection rate dropped from 28% to 20%, that's not a big drop, (laughs) really. I mean, if you're used to getting uh, 95% compliance and you've been at 80% and below for like a year, you're going to start having to, you're going to be more willing to spend more money to just get stuff moving. Um, And I think that is in play to an extent here, uh, you know, especially in the divergence of spot and a compliance there. Uh, but I, I think this concept, I, I think this is going this is going to hold us true through the rest of the year because something we saw uh, with the winter freeze, uh, I think this exact uh, function explains what we saw with spot rates and tender rejection rates spiking at the end of February because everybody's been so used to being tight and then all of a sudden it's like, oh no. I've got to go out and get something now. It's like that, you know, supply shortage mentality where you are, you know, supplies are limited. I got to go get it. And so we're more sensitive to those things. So we're going to be willing to bid our prices up more. And that's, I think that's exactly what you're saying is happening is that everybody's been so stressed for so long. It's like, I spent a dollar 20 last week, a dollar 25 is not going to hurt me (laughs) Um, for the same thing. No, you're you're totally right. You're totally right. And Anthony can appreciate this because I he he grew up in Phoenix too. But you know, there'll be days in July where you go outside and you're like, hey, it's only 105. Great. <laughs> and that's actually not great, but it's better than yesterday when it was 112. Exactly. And so I, I think you're absolutely right. Companies are just spending what they need to spend. And partly it's because, well, what's the alternative? Don't spend and then don't have any sales. Right. You know, this way you at least maybe it's more expensive. But you're at least keeping things, uh, keeping things moving as much as as possible. And you know, it's it's interesting. The other uh, major difference we had in that upstream downstream chart that I think is related to this: upstream firms, uh, we looked at, at inventory uh, costs, so cost holding inventory. Upstream firms were uh, at a uh, a, a, a ninety one, almost a ninety two, and downstream firms were at, at an eighty three, basically. So it's, it's basically a nine point difference, but statistically significant. And so I, I think that, you know, one of the reasons that you're willing to spend to move things is because we have so much inventory already that the alternative is is untenable. We can't just let things sit here because we're already basically maxed out uh, in terms of in terms of our capacity and in terms of the cost. You know, I mentioned it a minute ago, but warehousing prices were at an 88 this this month which is the highest number we've ever had. 
And it's largely driven, I think, by those, those, that level of inventory and those inventory costs we have upstream. We can't move things uh, around, essentially. And so, no, I, I, I think which, what you're saying about the cost sort of being not irrelevant at this point, but just something that's normal. And, and you know, I, I think that it's interesting, Zach, because, um, you know, seasonality, like what you said about February, normally you kind of, oh, okay, the peak season's over. Now we shift our, how we're thinking in February. Seasonality is still not back to normal. You know, you were showing that um, that that container ordering chart uh, a, a little right. while ago, and you were showing how look how much higher it was July last year. Well, that's because July last year was unusual right. because we had been so dead in a couple months before. If you looked back a couple years before, July being low was sort of normal. Okay, mm-hmm. and so it's the same thing with you know when you guys had the show last week. Oh, August. Normally isn't this busy, but it's pretty busy right now. We're about to have our busiest August ever in the port of Los Angeles. Um, seasonality still hasn't, we haven't gotten back to our normal rhythms. We haven't gotten back to the normal rhythm of the year because honestly, you, things kind of started going back to normal in the spring. <laughs> and now it seems like maybe they're not, they're going back the other way again. And so it's going to take us a while to catch up. And I don't think that it's wise for, for folks watching the show to assume that we're going to have like a normal Q4. You know, if you look at the sales, um, let's just say like e-commerce sort of sales uh, from uh, e-commerce retail sales from last fall, you know, normally there's a big spike right around Thanksgiving Uh, and everyone was expecting it to be a huge Cyber Monday and Black Friday last year. And and there, there was growth, but it was fairly muted, especially compared to like, say, Singles Day in China. But where we did see a lot of growth was just in the entire month of November and all of basically early December. Instead of it being a spike for retail last Q4, it was sort of like a plateau. And I think companies might need to move away from the idea of like Black Friday and more towards an idea of like Black Fall (laughs) or Black Q3, Black Q4, because that really is what's happening. And seasonality is not going to just come back this year. Maybe it will in the future. But for right now, I I think we're just sort of it's got to be a little more day by day. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of a quote we heard yesterday in our, our event, our summit, talking about some trends at a certain point don't become trends anymore. It's just now this is it. Adjust to it. Um, so, Zach, you were mentioning warehouse prices. I think we have a chart for it. Can you talk a little bit more about this number? Because this is, as you said, the highest reading to date. Anything else that you can add to yeah. this? It is the highest reading to date. And, and it's interesting because warehouse prices have sort of been, of all our price indices, Warehouses are sort of the, the moderate one. And you can see this, this scale you have goes from like 60 to, to 90. And it's been sort of just in that short range, like a 30-point range for the last, how, whatever this, it looks like this graph goes back about, oh, all the way back pretty much. And so this is like all five years we've been doing this. It's only moved about 30 points. And for most of this, like up through like July this time last year, it only really been between like 60 and, and 80. Compare that to something like transportation prices, Transportation prices have been a 96. They've been a 31, right? Trucking prices go up and down and are very reactive and are kind of all over the place, right? They move quickly. Warehouses, because a lot of times they're long-term contracts, maybe a year, three years, they're they're more deliberate. They move slowly and it takes a lot to really get them moving. So I think the fact that now 
in the last, basically since, let's say, since uh, Q4 of last year, right? You can see that's really when we start to, to spike up like crazy. Really, end of Q3 last year, start to spike up like crazy. It's showing that we're not living in, in sort of normal times, okay? For warehousing to be moving at a steep slope at all is very unusual. Again, wouldn't be unusual for transportation or inventory prices. It is unusual for warehousing. And, and again, I think it goes back to what we were saying a minute ago, where the length and the level of stress that companies have been at are getting people to sort of rip up the playbook. And, and it's like what you were saying a minute ago, Zach. All right, I got to pay a premium for this warehouse space. Fine. If I don't, I'm not going to have anywhere to put my containers. Or I'm not going to have anywhere to stage inventory so I can deliver somewhere next day or, or as close to the next day as I can possibly get at this point. And so I think that the fact that warehousing prices are moving so much sort of epitomizes, it's a microcosm in some ways, of what's going on in supply chains right now and how unusual this is. Yeah. So the warehousing aspect is fascinating because, it, you know, to me, it looks like, you know, they're just trying to cram it. Uh, wherever they can, uh, move mm -hmm. it incrementally, like you said. Um, and I, I want to ask you this in terms of, you know, we talked about this earlier in the year, uh, a little bit how supply chains were changing to support more of a fulfillment center role versus a distribution mm -hmm. center role. Do you think that that's compounding uh, the oh, yeah. impact here to the prices mm -hmm. versus just simply like not having enough space to have, you know, yeah. have your freight? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it is, you're right. People are putting it where it's like when you're eight and you got to clean your room and just start jamming stuff under your bed or in the closet or something. It's the exact same thing, but people don't really change as they get older. Um, but you're right. So the fulfillment piece of it, and again, we saw evidence when we looked upstream downstream of just how busy fulfillment is right now, you know, it went up 40% last year. Um, the warehouse that you have to have to do fulfillment versus distribution are, are just inherently more expensive, right? If I'm doing distribution, I can have a warehouse out in the middle of, of the desert or a rural area. Old it's not industrial gonna be areas, low rent. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Out in the middle of nowhere, like you said. Right. It, if I'm doing fulfillment, then maybe I'm trying to like move into the Sears in the old mall that just closed or, you know, some other sort of infill area. I need to be close to where people are. The other issue uh, on the fulfillment side, I think, is that you know, what we're seeing right now with employment, it's tough to get people to go to work. And especially if you're in more of an urban area or suburban area where there's a lot of other options, it might be more difficult for these folks uh, to hire. And that's why you see like Amazon, Walmart, right? Everyone's raising how much they pay like crazy. And they are, they've been somewhat successful in that, you know, they offer more stability than say a restaurant or something. But I think it's the labor piece is going to be difficult for them as well because of all of the sort of competing factors that you have in the city. And right now, basically everyone is, is hiring. There's a, a little restaurant down the street from my house. I just saw a sign on the door. It was like, need a cook starting salary, $85,000. This is not a restaurant that would normally be paying $85,000 for a cook, but you know, if they don't have one, they're going to close, I think. And so there's so many other options in the areas where these fulfillment centers are. I think that piece of it is making it difficult as well. So, Zach, we're looking at these elevated prices, of course, but you also have a component within it, future expectations. What's that looking like? Because yeah. I know when I was looking at that, it didn't seem like it was much change on the pricing side, but what are some other aspects that you see kind of starting to shift? So the, the one sigh of relief I think we can have here is that capacity is positive 
for both warehousing and transportation. Transportation capacity, the future predictions. So this is, okay, next 12 months, what's going to happen? Transportation hadn't been positive for like eight months uh, before June and July. It had been, yeah, it's, it's not coming online. And I do think you do see hope uh, in some ways, right? We, we are ramping up our ability to manufacture trucks. Now, whether we'll, or not we'll have the semiconductors to put in the trucks is another question, but we will make more of the trucks. We're really ramping up uh, our capacity for containers. I think there's going to be a big investment in warehousing. I mean, right now, if you're a commercial real estate person, you're making so much money on every square foot you have. I'm, you're, I'm sure you're going to want to build some more. And so both of those are positive. Now, they're not as positive as maybe we would like, 55, 53 and a half. That's marginal levels of growth. But at least it shows that it's no longer contracting, right? We might be possibly, right? If we think about available capacity, you know, it might be sort of a U-shape. And maybe, maybe, according to this graph, we're now, we've hit the bottom of the U and maybe we're going to start coming back up. Now, I say that with a grain of salt because this is July, not October <laughs> or <laughs> September, right? I mean, that's the thing we have to keep in mind. Capacity feels like it's stretched as far as it can possibly go, but it's still Q3, right? In September, October, we'll see if it gets stretched even more and sort of what it's able to, to handle. Um, but I do think that's baked into that chart somewhat because you can also see, well, yes, we are predicting some increases, uh, some increasing capacity, but there's still relatively high rates of, of predicted price growth. And so, you know, if, if I'm a if I'm a supply manager and I'm thinking about when am I going to be out of the woods uh, with all this, uh, much like our friend Zach, when am I going to get out of the woods? <laughs> I, I'm thinking 2023 20, at this point. So I, that, I think it's is the time horizon included in that in that uh, future predictions? Are they like how forward looking is it? A year. It's a, a year, year forward. Okay. Where are we going to go? So. If that's where we are in July 22, then I, I don't think it's going to be great in, you know, September or October 22 either. Now, I don't I don't want to just come on this show and be the prince of darkness. So I do. There is one thing I do want to tell you guys that's I, like to happy. Note. So, uh, you know, um, dedicated listeners of the program will remember that I haven't had air conditioning in my car since late May uh, <laughs> because the hose coming over from China hasn't got it just wasn't here right it was on the truck well on monday uh faithful viewers i did get air conditioning in my car again the part finally got here so they're slow but supply chains are still working and uh and now i don't have to drive around with the windows down and just breathe in all the forest fire smoke uh i can have air conditioning again so oh so that's so that's nice yeah. that was actually going to be the next question is what's going on with your car ac what's happening yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right so I got to ask, so with all this, you know, dude, a year out and people are still, honestly, for it being 12 months out and people are still, those numbers still seem a little high <laughs> for 12 months out. But, you know, we overreact <laughs> in general uh, as mm -hmm. a population. I mean, nothing's more apparent to me than that, especially now with all, especially when we're stressed or things are great or really bad. Like we, we tend to overreact psychology uh, 101. I was a psych minor. Um, <laughs> and with the extended period of stress here, do you think that we are going to we're going to overreact to this situation, and then we're going to be we're going to follow up all this boom with some form of overreaction? Like all, we're, all of a sudden, we're going to have empty warehouses in 2024, and 
trucks are going to be lining the sides of streets, you know, at some point mm. over the next couple of years, do you think that there's going to be another, some form of retraction that's going to be more significant than like the expansion? You know, I, I kind of think that the expansion we're having now is a, a reaction to the retraction we just had in some right. ways. So I wouldn't expect to have a retraction of this uh, scale I hope in not. the next, <laughs> I, I mean, unless, unless COVID-24 comes out, you know, but, but if, if not, then I think we'll be okay. Um, I, I, of course there'll be cycles here, but if you look at the way the economy is changing, really what COVID did is it accelerated the changes that were already happening in the economy, right? So e-commerce is going up by 15%, said it goes up by 40%. Well, e-commerce takes a lot of trucks, a lot of warehouses, expensive warehouses, like we just talked about. Over the next five years, that that's not going to like go away. And uh, you know, right now, I think retail is thirteen percent, or uh, excuse me, e-commerce is thirteen percent of retail. In twenty twenty five, it's going to be twenty five, twenty six percent of retail. So as a percentage of retail, it will essentially double. Okay, and so I, I don't necessarily think that, at least for the, the that short horizon, the next five years or so, that we're going to need less warehouses. Or need less trucks. I think we're in such a hole um, that even if we do react strongly, it would be. It, I think it would be difficult for us to overreact uh, based on the hole we've been in. I mean, you saw the aggregate capacity graph a minute ago. We've been uh, contracting for now a full year in terms of available logistics capacity, and so I think even if we push hard for a while, it will be really hard uh, for us to overcorrect in the short term. Now, of course, we don't want to build like this for the next 10 years because eventually we will we will catch up. Um, but but I think in the short term, that that's that's like let's cross that bridge when we get here. You know, let's for right now, let's just worry about about overcorrecting, right? It's it's like the guy who starts going to the gym and he's like, Well, you know, like he had lifted weights ever. He's like, I don't want to get too big, don't want to get growth. Like, you know what? Like we're work on like benching a hundred pounds first, and then we'll worry about you getting too big later. Uh that's that's sort of where we are. So, Zach, thank you so much for joining us. We have a special segment. Of course, I think you might be interested in this, but the Debateonomics, if you'd like to stick around. Yeah, let's do it. All right, Debateonomics. This is a big one. Uh, so there's two parts to this debate uh, in general. And Zach, I don't know how much uh, you grew up with video games, still like to play them, et cetera. You know, I mean, I grew up in Nintendo. Uh, yeah the era of the Nintendo. And so I kind of stuck with them. I mean, I dabbled in Playstations and, and whatnot, but the big question here, and this is driven by a lot of people, and this is going to feed into the next part. It's a two-parter. <laughs> are, are you a Switch person or are you an Xboxer? Or do you even uh, have an opinion? Right, <laughs> right, right. So I, I, the games I would play if I ever just played a video game by myself would be on the Xbox. I have an Xbox. I, I look at it sometimes mm -hmm. and then I put a game in and it says, hold on, I have to do an update for an hour and a half. And then I just forget about it. But so, so the, the, the one that I actually use the most is the switch mostly because my, my daughter's nine and, and her speed is, is less, you know, call of duty and more right. Mario tennis. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's more what I'm doing right now, probably. So this is an interesting one because it does have to do with the supply chain, of course, because there's restock issues with the PS5, Xbox, the OLED Switch. They What's all that? require semiconductors. Yes, so there's a shortage. You can go on these websites, check the restock dates and all these other rushes to get them. But the thing is, Switch is not the superior model. I mean, it's great that you can take it around and it's portable. It's cool. It's all that stuff. 
But as some of the production team was talking about today, Cody Mathis mentioned the prices for some of these games doesn't compare to the quality of game and the price point that you would get from Microsoft. And there's much better quality on Microsoft games than there are or there, there would be. I don't know what this meme is, but there, there would be for the Xbox games. <laughs> I can't see the hey. entire meme there, but... Anthony, <laughs> the people who made this meme are the type of people who go on Reddit and make memes. And they have a different <laughs> set of concerns than I do. What I'm looking for at a video game system is like, hey, if I have to run upstairs and talk to my friends about trucks for a half hour, is there a little video game I can give to my daughter so she stays downstairs and doesn't come in the room and say anything to me? <laughs> Great. That's what I'm looking for. And so for that, the Switch is perfect. Oh, see, and you're hitting on the point. You're, you're hitting on Economics 101 here. Uh, I guess it's a 201 class. But <laughs> to me, it doesn't matter how complicated you make the game, how immersive you make the game. Uh, in terms of overall value, the only thing that matters is the value of the product itself and how much you get out of it. So... Maybe you spend 120 hours with insane graphics. The same 120 hours can still be enjoyed with slightly less graphics or a slightly slower engine. I played Legend of Zelda <laughs> and enjoyed it as much as I ever have Call of Duty. <laughs> um, and it's, it's, not it's about the software, not about the hardware. I will retort in saying <laughs> that you could also substitute these Econ 201 as well with a similar good. A tablet, a cell phone, you don't even need a whole nother game system. They're the equivalent of playing, what is it, Flappy Bird on your cell phone, on your iPhone. So you don't even need a Switch. Get the game system for what it's for, Xbox. You can play DVDs, all these other streaming services on it or whatever. Eh, that's you the know, one. Yeah, Anthony, also, you know, this, this whole better. conversation has been like, hey, tell me you don't have kids without saying you don't have kids. <laughs> That's exactly right. Exactly. You need a phone and an iPad and a Switch if you're spending a lot. <laughs> if you're going on a road trip, I'm driving to Las Vegas to see my wife's family. We need all three. We, can, we can't just have one. Exactly. That's exactly right. We're living in completely different realities. But yeah, that is yeah. kind of saying you don't have kids without saying you don't have kids. But I will say... Probably somewhere, someone that games on PC or something like that is probably laughing at everyone because they built out this $2,000 machine and just has the best graphics, 1440 streaming and all this other stuff. But I will side with Xbox. Well, it, you know, just like trucking capacity, people will pay for what they want and what they need. And it doesn't matter what's underneath it. <laughs> so with that, uh, Dr. Zach Rogers, thank you as always for joining us this week. Uh, where can people reach out to you, find you, talk to you, et cetera? Absolutely. So if you have a question or would like to be part of the, the group that, that takes the LMI, uh, go ahead and send me a note at Zach, Z-A-C dot Rogers, R-O-G-E-R-S at Colo, C-O-L-O, state dot E-D-U. You can also check out this month's LMI report and any other uh, of our historical reports going back to 2016 at the They come out the first Tuesday of every month. Very awesome. And thank you so much. And thank you for watching this week's Freightonomics. Hopefully everybody goes out and uh, pre-orders their Switch for <laughs> Christmas because it's probably uh, not going to get capacity. <laughs> and drink more water. Maybe you should eat something. Something, drink more water out of your air fryer. <laughs> <laughs>